Well, welcome once again to Third Reform, and we are in the midst of an Advent series. We are starting uh, to look at passages that deal with this incredibly hard-to-understand thing called the fact that Emmanuel has come to us. We're looking this morning at a portion of that in Matthew's Gospel. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. We are coming off of a great Thanksgiving. I trust that you had a good Thanksgiving with family, friends, and food. Do I need to say food? That you've eaten a lot of food. But we don't want to forget the fact that we are about celebrating Advent, but we're also about get, continuing to give thanks. That should be the theme of every Christian, that we are people who love to give thanks and love to celebrate our Savior. Before we look at that, let me just uh, again put it in context of the fact that we really are starting, I think, one of the most uh, sentimental times of the year. I love Christmas for a lot of reasons, but it's, it's one of the most sentimental times of the year, isn't it? The decorations, as you see, the songs, the smells all bring back kind of a rush of memories, don't they? When you, when you see things that, yes, this is what it's all about, and this makes me think about other Christmases I've had. Perhaps you, here's a challenge for you that might be harder for some of us. Do you remember one of your earliest Christmas gifts as a child? Do you remember that gift that you thought, wow, this is what I've longed for? I'm an old man, but I still remember when I got my first bicycle. <laughs> my parents didn't wrap it. It was, I got, we got our gifts and we were thought it was over. And my father leaves the room, and the next thing you know, he's wheeling in this big red bike. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I couldn't wait to ride it. What a, what a great memory for me. But the, you know, there's also a paradox here, isn't there? I think the downside of being too sentimental is that you have a tendency to live in the past and not see the importance of making memories for the future. Christmas is more than those past things. The Christmas season really is a time to rest and reflect, but it's also a time to build for the future. We sentimentalists, that includes me, we sentimentalists also, we tend to wear rose-colored glasses because we don't want to see the ugliness that is still around us, like broken relationships, disappointments in life, legitimate fears for the future. The Christmas season can be a very depressing time for many people. And just pretending doesn't make our problems go away or our future any brighter. But in the Christian church and in the calendar year, this is one of the highest seasons of the year, this Advent season. And although the Bible doesn't command this to be a festal season of celebration. I believe it is good and necessary to highlight one of the richest doctrines in all of Scripture, namely the doctrine of the Incarnation. What are we celebrating? We're celebrating the Incarnation, God coming into this world. Yes, this is indeed a time for warm and sentimental memories that I think we desperately need in our society and culture. But it's also a time of mystery, isn't it? The greatest mystery and memory for all of us 
is to meditate on the fact that at this point in time, over 2,000 years ago, think about it, the infinite became finite. <laughs> Did you hear that? Over 2,000 years ago, almighty, infinite God became finite. That paradox in itself, that's going to take the rest of our earthly Christmases and throughout all of eternity even to begin to understand. So I want to spend this Advent season looking more closely at this mystery, this apparent paradox. And there are many paradoxes that surround this historic event of the Incarnation. But I want to attempt to help us understand, I think, the necessity of our Lord's incarnation. But at the same time, the eternal mystery. Friends, there are some things we need to understand. We really have to understand. There are some things we'll never understand. There are some things you and I have got to get a hold of. But there are some things we are never going to get because we're talking about Almighty God. So let's look at this one incident, one description of the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, and, and begin to dwell on that as well. Here now from God's Word, chapter 1 of Matthew. This follows the first portion of Matthew, chapter 1, is all of the genealogy of the birth of Christ, how it came fulfilling the genealogy. I remember a pastor I worked with in Maryland, whenever he read this publicly, he would get all choked up. <laughs> the genealogy was so profound that our Savior came to fulfill those promises. But here now, the birth of Jesus, starting at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The origin of this doctrine of incarnation was really was an eternal mystery in the Trinity in heaven, but we see it found its earthly reality in a manger, in a manger. 
God became man. Do you understand that? I think you ought to hesitate before you say, yeah, I got it. (laughs) Almighty God became man. The first paradox I want us to look at our contrast is to see its, its origin. Where did this come from? The origin of this majestic incarnation. I would suggest that the origin of Jesus' incarnation, it was in the beauty of the counsel and the wisdom of the Trinity. And that was in the context of eternity. In other words, it started before creation of the world. Before time began, there was a counsel and a determination of this triune God. Jesus didn't start his existence at Christmas. He always was. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's take a closer look now at that that heavenly and earthly paradox of the birth of the eternal Son of God through Matthew's account. That opening phrase should catch us, should cause us to pause. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The birth of the Messiah, the entrance of Almighty God, that should jump out at us. What in the world? How can that be? Just how did the second person of the Trinity come into this world? The Messiah did not come directly, did he? But he came through the means of every other being in the world, born of a woman, in the image of God. That creed we read, the Nicene Creed, I trust you captured Many times it was said that Jesus, this Son of God, was begotten, not created. Matthew goes on to explain further the paradox of this process in the same verse. When he describes the fact an unwed mother was pregnant with the Christ child. You get your head around that. A woman out of wedlock was pregnant with the Christ child. But the origin of that child was completely different. The origin of that child was the spirit of almighty God. That's hard to understand, isn't it? This was simply... This was not simply a paradox or something them all over. In the eyes of Joseph, it was clear this was sin. (laughs) It was clear to Joseph this was not right. There was no need to explain things Joseph was wrestling with. It was obvious what happened. This loving virgin, he had committed himself. She clearly committed adultery. In this culture, to be betrothed was to be virtually married. You didn't conjugate the relationship till after that ceremony, but you were pretty much married. And it was clear to Joseph, this was not a paradox. This was sin. What have you done? It's clear to me and to others around us. 
But look at verse 19. What what does Matthew record here about Joseph? And her husband Joseph, being a just man. You see how Matthew records a quality of Joseph that seemed to reflect a level of compassion. Joseph could have made it a lot worse for Mary. A quiet divorce was better than a trial and a public embarrassment even worse. She could have been stoned to death. She committed adultery. It was clear what you did, Mary. You could almost hear, you could almost feel Joseph's anger and sadness. Like he was talking to himself saying, I thought I knew her. I thought we had a future as a couple in God's covenant family of Israel. This is so bizarre. This is so painful. This is so wrong. God, why? Why? This is not only embarrassing, but it's wrong. And an important side note, too, look again at verse 20. What did Joseph do? But as Joseph considered these things, he considered them. His struggle with Mary was not an impulsive and vindictive response. He genuinely tried to understand, and that's when God spoke to him. He was wrestling in his heart. What have I done to deserve this? What is, why did Mary do this? Why did this happen? God, I don't get it. He didn't get so angry that he threw off God and threw up everything else. He said, I, I'm trying to understand, my God, what has just happened. He genuinely sought to understand what God was doing. And then... God spoke to him through an angel. And look at how he addressed Joseph. Joseph, son of David. Right away, right away, Joseph's realizing this is bigger than me. This has something to do with King David, who I am descended from. There is something greater going on here. God's angel spoke to him. This was clearly outside of himself, outside of Mary having their first child out of wedlock. There was something else going on. I think in light of what we saw unfolding socially with Joseph and Mary, we see yet another paradox, another contrast in the places of origin of our Savior, Emmanuel. Think again where Jesus came from. He, his was a place of glory surrounded with beauty and praise. What's that like? What's heaven like? I think we get a glimpse in the final book of the Bible when John talks about it in the book of Revelation. Listen to what he says about that dwelling place, about eternal life, about heaven. He says this, quote, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Wouldn't you like that? 
I have a world where there is nothing wrong. Everything is right and beautiful. That's where Jesus came from. Jesus left a perfect world to come to an imperfect world in an imperfect way. The glory our Savior left was without shame, and it was holy. No hidden rooms, no ulterior motives, just the fullness of grace and truth. But the immediate world he came to at that manger scene, think about it, it was already surrounded by shame and confusion. A betrothed woman pregnant giving birth in a less than wholesome place. What a shame And what shame was evident? What was going on? But let's step back further and see the broader context of the world he came into. That world that Jesus came into was filled with corruption, sin, death, and brokenness. And it wasn't just once in a while, periodically. It was consistently that way. How bad was it? How bad was this world that Jesus, the incarnate one, came into? How about the fact that a Roman king would shortly order the deaths of every male-born child the age of two and under because of his own pride and jealousy, send his guards, rip that child from that home, and destroy that child? That's the kind of world that Jesus came into. And look at our own world today. Step back further, friends. It seems like every aspect of society is confused, shamed, and broken. This is the world the Christ child was born into. The world he had come to save would be the world that would cause his death. What a paradox. What a brokenness. So let's look now, let's not lose sight of what this culmination of the origin of the Messiah would show. The eternity that Jesus came from would have an earthly fulfillment. Look again at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. This event, this paradox of leaving the glory of heaven and coming into our world was the richest of all our doctrines in that God is now with us in the form of his son. This was the culmination of the plan from all eternity. God the Father would come in the form of his son By the power of his spirit, Emmanuel. And this this reality, this truth, would literally change the world. But I hope you catch how, look how it immediately changed Joseph. When Joseph got the clear picture of the fulfillment of God's prophetic work in in the lives of himself and his wife, He did two things. We see that in the end. Joseph took his wife. He took his wife. You're now my wife. I will not reject you. 
I will embrace you. And I will walk through life together, even in the midst of this shame and confusion. You are my wife. I will do, not just as my God has commanded, but as my heart desires. I will take you as my wife. And then he does the other thing. He called his name Jesus. My son's name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He no longer felt shame with his wife, but embraced her and this child that came not from them, but from heaven. And he would now spend the rest of his earthly life considering these things. Joseph considered things early, but now he will consider them for the rest of his earthly life. As we begin this Advent season, I have to ask this question to myself as well as you. What about you? What about me? What, what does the birth of Jesus do not only to your mind, but to your soul? How do we get our finite minds around this infinite miracle? My friends, the Christian faith from its beginning to final eternity it's always been a supernatural faith. That means it is beyond our natural comprehension and our ability. You and I, hear me now, you and I cannot see the Christ child or believe in his saving work without his personal intervention in your mind and your heart. That's another paradox we have to consider sometime as well. Look again at how Mary and Joseph came to believe and understand. How did they get it? Not of themselves. It was through the direct intervention of God by way of messengers. But they had been in the habit of considering eternal things and God. And his time would seal and confirm that work. And I would suggest to you, this would be the pattern of Jesus throughout his earthly life and ministry, beginning at his birth. Apart from that personal work of God's spirit in your heart and my heart, apart from that personal work, this, this Advent season, this birth child, this, this will be a sentimental birth child. Or, as an adult, we will look at him on that cross as another wonderful martyr who died for a cause. We won't really understand who Jesus is apart from his spirit. Here are two lives of countless lives affected by Jesus that are recorded in scripture. Emmanuel, the one who is given to us, affected many lives, but one was Simeon, who was a devout man who throughout all of his life considered the things of God. He actually held the Christ child in the temple and he actually recognized him. Why? Here's what Luke says. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He would have missed it had God not opened his eyes to that baby Jesus. But we also see even at the death of Jesus, 
at the death where so many were mocking him, couldn't see him for who he was, Emmanuel dying on a cross. At that cross, the centurion who had been guarding him had his own spirit confirmed by the Holy Spirit when that centurion looked up at Jesus at his death and said, truly, this was the Son of God. I see who he really was and is. So friends, as we start another Christmas season, I beg us, myself included, let's ask the Spirit of God, would you open our eyes again to this glorious mystery? Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have come to us. And we confess to you, it's almost, well, it is incomprehensible in and of ourselves. But we ask by your spirit, you would open our eyes even anew to see what it meant for God to become man, to come into this world, into this broken world for one primary purpose, to save us, to save us. Oh, help us to see Jesus and all that he is. And especially now, as we come to this, your table, this is where those understandings become even clearer, seeing that you've given yourself for us. We ask your blessing in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.